We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea, is Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Conrad. Hello. And in this episode, we are joined by uh, Dr. Lee Jones, a reader in international politics at Queen Mary University of London and the co-founder of the Full Brexit website. Welcome to the podcast, Lee. Thanks for having me on. Um, So first of all, I'd like to ask, uh, where did the uh, inspiration come from to create the Full Brexit website? We set up the website last spring um, after we had a conference of academics on the left who supported uh, leaving the European Union, who are quite an endangered breed. Um, But, you know, for too long, we we hadn't put our head above the parapet, I suppose. Uh, Some of us have been active, but most people have not. And we thought that the time really had come for us to, to make a stand publicly and to stand up with and for the majority of British people that voted to leave the European Union, but also with the vast majority of people who voted remain, but also think that this country needs urgent uh, democratic reform and economic renewal. And so that's really the strap line of our uh, website for popular sovereignty, democracy and economic renewal. So it, it grew out of that conference. And our objective since has been to try to provide analysis of uh, British and European politics and the European Union to understand what the European Union is, uh, understand what Brexit is and why it's actually so difficult to implement, and uh, to also put forward proposals for the future if we ever actually do manage to leave the European Union. So um, in terms of of Labour, sort of left-wing ideas of Brexit, there sort of seems to be two main strains there's sort of the blue labor john mann kind of types as well as the sort of more socialist sort of george galloway if he's not too controversial a figure but that kind of sort of more socialist view what sort of if either of those do you think would sort of you more align with well the full brexit's a very broad church so everybody that um, signed up to our founding statement is on the broad left. And I think some people might sit on the sort of liberal left and some people on the very far left. So it, it encompasses people who um, you know, are Labour voters, other people that are not, other people that are far, far to the left of, of the Labour Party. So we're not confined by any party political position. I mean, really what unites us is a respect for democracy, um, popular sovereignty and economic renewal, like I said earlier on. So um, yeah, it's a it's a broad church, and actually, you know, it, that founding statement is open for anybody to to register their support. And we've even had members of the Conservative Party um, register their support for what is a very left wing sort of uh, statement. So it's deliberately broad and all encompassing. It's just as long as you share those foundational commitments, which are expressed in a desire to leave the European Union, um, then you know you could. Uh, support our our group. Uh, now, one of the things that has been happening recently with Brexit has been the uh, legal battle in the um, Scottish Court of Sessions and in the Supreme Court. Do you think that these legal cases will have 
a negative effect on the way that people who support leave and voted to leave view our democracy and more specifically our judiciary. I mean, they will, but uh, I think they have to be viewed as part of a longer term process whereby public confidence in our democratic and judicial institutions has been eroding for decades. Uh, it's, it's hardly, you know, Boris Johnson's prorogation of parliament uh, is just the latest in a very long series of um, events that have really, I think, shaken people's confidence in the British ruling class. Uh, and the establishment institutions. So I would say the main damage has been done by the majority of parliamentarians who just simply never accepted the instruction given to them in the 2016 referendum. And so they've just refused to represent the electorate. That really is the, the nub of the Brexit crisis. And that, more than anything else, um, casts parliament into disrepute. But obviously, the shenanigans that have been going on in Parliament since late last year uh, have really shown up the, the British ruling elite as, as fairly incompetent, deeply divided. Um, and the more that the courts are dragged into this, the more that it turns into a wider constitutional crisis. I mean, the Queen has been dragged into this. The House of Lords has played its role in trying to um, negate Brexit. And the more the courts are brought into it, and there's, there's scarcely a part of the constitutional setup that is not being politicised in this highly polarised battle. And one wonders what will be left at the end of it all. Um, it clearly shows the need for deep and wide ranging reform of the, of the British constitutional setup. Um, we've sort of seen sort of with you said about how there's um, been this sort of elites sort of going against sort of what people voted for and the, in a, a hypothetical future general election there's talk of it being a people versus parliament kind of election do you think that would be an effective line for Boris Johnson to take in, in sort of Labour northern seats and Midlands seats that are marginal or do you think that there's too much of like a, a sort of anti-Tory sentiment in some of those seats well I think it's absolutely right there will be a a people versus parliament election and parliament has fallen right into the trap laid by Dominic Cummings because they've uh, they've shown themselves to be absolutely recalcitrant that they, they will not implement Brexit and they won't even have an election. I mean, that's the most shocking thing, I think, is that they refuse to be bound by the referendum result to implement Brexit, you know, in the end, regardless of, of how it's implemented. Um, they have frustrated um, the enactment of a deal. There is no other deal on option. So they've voted down the deal. There's no other deal on offer. And then they refuse no deal. And what that amounts to is refusing Brexit, which amounts to saying to the majority of people that voted for it, uh, your vote doesn't count. So it's it's very obvious that they are, in fact, in contradiction to the people, which allows Boris Johnson to run that kind of populist line. And that's going to be very ugly. It'll be a very unpleasant election campaign, I think, and uh, it won't do anything to help move the country forwards in terms of healing the divisions that have opened up in society over the last few years. Um, um, but that's Remainers in Parliament. That's their fault. Whether it will be effective, I think, is a separate question. Um, 
I think that it's certainly the case that the Tories will run that kind of line and try to make it a Brexit election, but the Labour Party will clearly try to make it an election about everything except Brexit, which they did successfully in 2017. They'll try to talk about abolishing private schools or uh, helping the NHS or transport infrastructure or any literally anything else to avoid talking about the biggest issue of the day because they are in such disarray um, over this and they're really torn between two different social bases. You have Leave supporting working class, the traditional Labour vote, and then you've got the Remain supporting middle metropolitan class, um, which is, uh, you know, threatening to go over to the Lib Dems. And give the dominance of the liberal left wing in the in the in the Labour Party. It's the latter that are being prioritised, and that's what that's what opens space for the Brexit Party and for the Conservative Party. Um, now it's true that in the northern heartlands, which I know well because I'm from the north of England, and I think that's probably also true of Wales, that still a lot of really dis- deeply disillusioned um, Labour voters will not will be reluctant to just flip over to the Conservatives in one fell swoop. Um, The truth is that they've been, the Labour Party's been losing working class support to the Conservatives for a long time, but rarely directly um, in the last 20 years, let's say. It's often been via UKIP as a a sort of gateway drug, if you like. So in the 2017 election, for example, a lot of working class voters reoriented to the Conservative Party uh, while the UKIP vote collapsed. So they shifted from UKIP into the Tories, and that's what resulted in a large boost in the working class vote. How many more will flip over from the Labour Party? It's hard to say. Um, but I think, you know, the four million Labour voters that voted Leave have been um, profoundly insulted and abused for the last three and a half years, in addition to looking at all the shenanigans in Parliament. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if quite a lot of them uh, uh, broke from the Labour Party and, and, and voted for, for Boris Johnson. Do you think that if um, the certain section of the Labour Party that does support leaving the European Union, do you think if that were to break away and create a, a new party, a, a Labour for Leave party, for example, how successful do you think that would be or do you think that the political system uh, the electoral system sorry that we have at the moment would prevent such a party from gaining any ground yeah that's a great question i mean the the left you know the the people to the left in the labor party or the left of the labor party i think have been struggling with this question for decades is how do we um create a, a party that is electorally successful that actually pushes this country towards socialist transformation. Um, that's what real leftists are actually interested in. Um, but the Labour Party is generally not interested in that. It claims to be interested at the moment under the tenuous leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, but that's largely a historical accident. Um, and of course, the, the bulk of the parliamentary party, and arguably the party at large, is, uh, is much more, uh, is much further to the right. Um, and the section of the socialist section of the of the Labour Party that was represented by people like John McDonnell and um, Jeremy Corbyn, and before that, people like Tony Benn, um, Barbara Castle, and so on. There's a long left tradition of, 
um, the hostility to European integration precisely because it's anti-democratic and locks in um, capitalist governance principles. They don't any, have any more senior representation in the party anymore because Corbyn is really a sort of captured to a certain extent, hemmed in by these other forces. And I think, to be honest with you, I think I do wish that those uh, groups would break from the Labour Party. I wish the left would break from the Labour Party and realise that it can't achieve its objectives through the Labour Party. But historically, the British left has shown an enormous reluctance to do that. Um, and it, it's still extremely reluctant today. And my expectation is that a lot of the, you know, the young people that have been turned on to socialism for the first time by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and, and the older left around the Labour Party that, that do support leaving the European Union, they're going to be essentially going to be bounced into supporting a pro-Remain Labour election campaign at the next election. And, and, and they will in the end, rationalise that to themselves by saying, oh, well, if we can get Jeremy elected, you know, then we'll have some kind of socialism, which they won't. I mean, that's a that's not going to happen now because electorally the path to forming a government lies through winning back marginal seats currently held by the Conservative Party. You can kiss goodbye to that idea. Hmm. Now the party has flipped over to remain. Um, regardless of, of the way that Corbyn tries to finesse it, people in those seats see exactly what is going on. They're not stupid. Um, so the very best that one could imagine happening is somehow Labour squeaking in as a minority government. Uh, but even that, I think, is pretty doubtful. So that's not going to happen. They're actually not going to break from the Labour Party. They, they're, for reasons, I think, that they're very complex. They're just congenitally unwilling to do so. You are right to raise the question of the electoral system, because that mm. would be an additional barrier. But we don't even get to that, I think. Mm. It doesn't even enter into people's consciousness, I think, that, oh, well, we can't do it because of the electoral system. I think they just they were so wedded to the Labour Party ideologically, um, socially, for reasons that I think are still I still personally, it's difficult for me to entirely understand why that is um, something we have to try and work out. And, and work on. Um, but, you know, some of us involved in the full Brexit have been working away on this question for 20, 30 years um, mm. and getting nowhere. It's a, it's a massive blockage on the left of British politics. Um, so we've, we've talked about Jeremy Corbyn and now a lot of people have said that he's really a lever at heart and he's just sort of going along with sort of his party for party unity's sake and that he probably did secretly vote leave in 2016. Um, do you think that there's truth to this? Do you think that Corbyn is sort of hiding this sort of latent lever inside himself or do you, or, or do you think that he has sort of switched over to remain? Well, I personally, I don't think... It there's really any room for debate. If you look at his record, um, he's on record many, many times as opposing European integration. You know, he led a lot of the debates in Parliament against the ratification of the Maastricht Treaty, for example. Um, and he's spoken out on public platforms and at many events and so on. I mean, I've gathered some of that evidence myself. It's, it's plain as the nose on his face that he was against the European Union in the same way that Tony Benn was and all the rest of that socialist tradition 
And Clement Attlee was opposed to European integration because mm. he said, you know, this is all about trying to lock in capitalist rules at the European level and prevent socialist policies. It goes right back to the, the founding of the welfare state. And Corbyn is squarely in that tradition. Um, I think that he has always occupied a very weak position within the parliamentary party. You know, he's at, he, as I, I called his election a historical accident. Um, which happened twice, and it's because of the changes that Ed Miliband made to the Labour Party leadership election rules, which allowed an influx of socialists into the party who were then able to, to elect Corbyn. And he's been fighting for his political survival ever since. And the only way that he's been able to maintain some kind of order against these frequent rebellions within the Labour Party, which are rebellions, incidentally, against the majority of the membership. So that gives you a sense of their anti-democratic sentiments. They've rebelled repeatedly against their democratically elected leader and, of course, against the wider public in the context of Brexit because they think they know better. Um, so he has, he's been in a very difficult position. And I think it, under those kind of structural circumstances, one would have to say that he has tried his best. I think he's not a very effective leader. Um, but he has tried his best to maintain fealty to the referendum result and not simply flip over to a bollocks to Brexit position like the Lib Dems. He's tried to hold those forces at bay, but those forces have been gaining in confidence and strength. And I think the European elections where the Labour Party lost a lot of votes to the Lib Dems was you know, a massive turning point where those forces were able to say, we, we won't survive if we don't adopt a, a more pro-Remain position. Of course, one could have, they could have led a, a, a pro-Leave um, pro position from 2016 onwards. How different it would have been if, after the election result, Labour MPs had been disciplined by the electorate and agreed to implement the result and really came up with, you know, a socialist plan for, for post-Brexit Britain and really rallied public opinion behind that. I think the last three years would have been extraordinarily different. This entrenched divide that we've that we've now have between Remainers and Leavers would not have uh, taken the form that it that it does, and Labour would not have to be flipping over to an an explicitly anti-democratic position um, in order to court uh, defectors to the Liberal Democrats. But that reflects the the. The dominance of left liberal forces within the parliamentary Labour Party and the fact that almost all um, members of the parliamentary members of the party campaigned for Remain. And it was just massively out of step with the general public. Um, one of the things that has been potentially uh, floated in relation to a uh, trade deal between Britain and Australia has been freedom of movement between UK and Australia. How do you think the public would react to that becoming a reality, given how much freedom of movement between the European Union and the UK ending was a part of the Leave campaign? Well, I mean, Australia is obviously a much smaller society than the, the totality of the European Union. And so I think that the numbers that would be involved would be lower and there's probably more two-way traffic but I mean whether that actually comes to pass is a different question my feeling about immigration 
policy and where people stand on on this in the general public is that people want an immigration policy that that is democratically sanctioned and fair and even-handed um it's not as people often suggest that brexiteers are all xenophobes and racists it's mm. simply not true um none of the data support that idea at all um if you look at uh various different measures that are used and admittedly is very difficult to measure racism and xenophobia but there are studies going back many decades that attempt to do so all of them show that britain is one of the most progressive open liberal and tolerant societies in the european union and in the world so there is just no evidence to support that you know the primary animus of brexit was racism as opposed to concern about immigration so i i the distinction i would make is that um people are not hostile to immigrants in a kind of racial discrimination sense some people are but most people are not um they're concerned about immigration they're concerned about a policy framework nobody ever asked them uh, should we have extremely large levels of inward migration every year to the extent of adding a major city to the to british society every year um without any commensurate planning without additional investment in transportation in education in healthcare in housing nothing should we have some unplanned influx of a quarter of a million people plus every year um nobody asked them that uh no compensatory frameworks are put in place to allow these allow newcomers to be integrated properly into society um nothing and whenever when anybody started to raise concerns about this they were just smeared and slandered as racist and that happened for many 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 years before the referendum and uh, the referendum gave them a, a, a an opportunity to register their dissatisfaction I think what people want going forwards is um a regime a, a, an immigration regime that is open open-handed and fair and uh one where politicians listen to local communities and put in place the necessary social um economic and hard infrastructure that is uh, required to help integrate newcomers into society I think there less concerned actually about where people come from if you look at the figures the national um opinion surveys that are done and collected by the office for national statistics the number of people who think that you know immigrants to the uk should be white has fallen over the last decade consistently um it now stands at something like 7% so it's quite small really relative to the the mass of the population um the numbers of people thinking that um immigrants should have relevant skills or that they should speak english i.e. that they should integrate into society that has increased so the concern that people have is about the the impacts that immigration is having socially and economically it's not that people are racist or intolerant of other people um and i think you can easily but not easily but you can design an immigration policy that is still relatively open compared to a lot of other countries um and is not and is actually in in effect it can be less racist 
than the current regime. Because, as we know, when you there is no real regulation over um, immigration from the European Union at the moment. Um, and that accounts for about uh, roughly half of um, uh, migration to the UK. So when there is concern about uh, high levels of um, net migration, then the government bears down on the other half, which is people coming from outside of the European Union. The net effect of that is to clamp down on immigration from non-majority white countries, particularly people coming from the old Commonwealth. Uh, so in effect, it's a racist migration policy. You know, you wouldn't get things like Windrush, for example, uh, outside outside of that context. That directly produces that kind of uh, impact. And of course, the European Union as a whole maintains a deeply racist um, border regime, basically fortress Europe, trying to stop anybody getting in from the outside, barbed wire and armed guards in the Balkans. EU uh, naval patrol forces in the Mediterranean um, turning back so-called people smugglers and the thousands of dead bodies of Middle Easterners and North Africans at the bottom of the Mediterranean tell their own story. Um, so um, if you um, if we're talking about um, specific types of Brexit um, there's obviously Jeremy Corbyn's got his idea of having a sort of close customs union relationship, regulatory alignment, whereas sort of Boris Johnson's idea is just sort of the withdrawal agreement minus the backstop, which would allow for a bit more distant relationship. Whereas Nigel Farage says no, nothing but no deal at all will do. What kind of Brexit deal or or otherwise would you ideally like to see, and do you think it's feasible? So a few of us on the full Bre in the full Brexit network have uh, spelled out a proposal on our website for a, for a full Brexit. And by that, we mean uh, a departure from the European Union that will enable maximum uh, popular sovereignty, uh, maximum democratic control over our politics and economics and thereby enable the greatest degree of economic renewal. Those are our objectives. Now, our opposition to the European Union is not just that it's undemocratic and anti-democratic, which it is, but also that those institutions have been used to lock in a particular neoliberal policy regime, which has produced decades of very low levels of economic growth, and very high levels of inequality within that, um, while hollowing out uh, manufacturing in particular, um, and 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 also seeing the rise of very large service sector, lots of it very low value added, low wage, uh, which contributes to problems of low productivity um, and low income growth. So. Our interest is in what kind of Brexit allows us to break from that policy regime um, and and set off on a new course um, based around investment, uh, rising productivity, technological advancement and rising incomes, especially for the poorest in society. And I think that um, maintaining a close alignment to 
the European Union in the form of a customs union or membership of the single market, for example, essentially re- retains large swathes of existing EU law and those regulations. So even the even the European economic area, the so-called Norway model, which is seen as the classical soft Brexit, for example, about a fifth of the EU acquis, the total bulk of um, EU laws, continues to apply. So you are then still within the regulatory ambit of the of the European Union. So um, the risk of the withdrawal agreement was that it, it did extract the the UK on paper from many of these aspects of, of EU regulation and restore the authority of Parliament and thereby the, the the authority of the people who elect Parliament to to make our own economic and social policies. Uh, which is really the heart of Brexit. That's what take back control means. Um, but the problem was the backstop. Um, I mean, there are, there are many other problems as well, but the main problem, I think, was the backstop, which could potentially um, uh, create the sort of situation where EU, EU rules will continue to apply almost in perpetuity, and it would be exceedingly difficult to break out of that situation because uh, there's no real uh, unilateral exit clause. So um, I think, you know, the MPs that voted against the agreement because they had concerns about the backstop, in my view, were right to do so. Others in the full Brexit network think that it should just have been supported because it's the only way to get Brexit. And we had a debate about that on our website. Um, I don't think that the EU is going to grant um, a Brexit deal without the backstop. But they've made that very, very clear since um, I think September last year. They, they, they can't make it any clearer. Uh, they're not prepared to um, really consider the technical alternatives that have been put, put forward by the UK. They've kind of poo-pooed it all along. And I think the Boris Johnson government is not really coming to the table with any uh, serious new proposals. Um, I, I don't. I don't think that they're, they're approaching um, the, the negotiations very seriously, to be honest. Um, so, you know, I think in the end, he thinks that no deal is, it kind of has to be no deal because the, the deal as it, as it stands, the EU won't really change. That deal can't get through Parliament as it stands. Um, and so the choice very clearly is between no Brexit or, um, no deal. And for, for reasons of, personal ambition and also the party interests of the Conservatives, he's not prepared to accept no Brexit. Um, and, you know, that that just happens to coincide with the interests of democracy in this country. So I think at this stage, the only way to get a meaningful Brexit is probably to break from the European Union with no deal. Um, but the UK state, because the British ruling class has never really been very keen on exiting the European Union, the British state is very poorly prepared for a no deal, even at this very late stage. So there's no doubt there would be some short term disruption, although I don't think it would be quite as disastrous and catastrophic as many people are suggesting as the, they peddle project via 2.0. Um, Corbyn's idea of a customs union, I mean, that's something that the EU will probably agree to fairly readily. But the idea that Corbyn is never going to be elected and negotiate a deal, I think is um as I said earlier on, I don't think it's very likely at all. Um, 
And also, you know, the Labour Party now has this absolutely ludicrous position um, of uh, we will negotiate a new deal with the European Union and then we will campaign against it in a second referendum. I mean, this is just bonkers. Uh, so I, I think that's unlikely to come to pass. Um, but at the same time, Parliament will do everything it can to block no deal and mm. to block an election to resolve the impasse. And it's not even clear if we did hold, hold an election now, it's not even clear that would break the impasse. I think the most likely outcome is probably another minority government under the Conservative Party. So I felt for a long time that looking at those kind of structural factors, which is the interests of the European Union, its negotiating position, the divisions in British society, the unrepresentativeness of the um, British political establishment. I felt for a long time that we we will inevitably move towards a second referendum in which there will be an attempt to negate the first mm. referendum. Um, and I, I still feel that's quite a likely outcome sometime next year. Uh, do you think that the uh, situation that we will have regarding uh, free trade deals with other countries could change in the circumstance of Canada, which is holding an election this October uh, with Justin Trudeau and quite a lot of uh, controversy over pictures of him in uh, blackface. Do you think that if there was a change of government, uh, say, for example, in Canada uh, to the opposition party, the uh, Conservative Party of Canada becoming the government, that that would make a trade deal between the UK and Canada post-Brexit more likely? Well, maybe so, but it, that's highly, A, that's highly hypothetical because I'm not even sure that Brexit will happen and I never have been. And I, I'm, at the moment, I'm exceedingly doubtful. So to talk about post-Brexit futures is, is extremely um, uh, hypothetical. Secondly, I think, and more importantly, I think there's been far too much emphasis on questions of trade and trade deals. Um, mm. the, the vast majority of the public did not vote for Brexit or even against Brexit because of trade deals. Uh, they're not motivated by questions of trade deals. And the problems that we face in this country and the problems that really motivated people, I think, to vote leave are not whether we have a trade deal with Canada, which in the end is a you know very small um trading partner, particularly compared to the European Union, the problems that we have go much deeper. Um, and they are to do with you know, the economic problems, for example. They're to do with, for example, labor productivity, chronically low levels of um, research and development and investment, uh, appalling infrastructure, lack of housing, lack of skills development, the hollowing out of industry, the development of a very low-end services sector, um, and, and no real sort of dynamism and growth, even in the, in the most sort of forward-facing elements of the, the British economy, plus, of course, financialization, the massive problem. These are all problems that they won't be solved by leaving the European Union. You know, we don't wake up the next day and we live in some kind of glorious utopian future. Um, leaving the European Union because it restores democratic policy um, accountability and policymaking capacity allows us to start to address those issues. And I think the public has been ex extraordinarily bored by the post-Brexit debate, which has all been about how we should organise our you know, post-EU trading relationships, which mm. 
not irrelevant to the question of economic growth, but they're fairly marginal, actually. You know, whether we get a free trade deal with Canada or not is not going to determine the future of this country. Um, so it's a it's a massive failure. I mean, the, it, it shows you the massive uh, failure of imagination on the conservative side, because literally all the conservative Brexiteers have been able to bang on about is global Britain and buccaneering mm. free trade. It mm. shows their paucity of imagination. But equal Labour Party is even worse because they're unable to imagine a future for Britain outside of the European Union. The idea terrifies them. Mm. A, a really kind of transformative, forward-thinking, radical party would be able to spell out um, a future for Britain, which is bright and transformative outside of the European Union, because leaving it enables many of the transformations that are set out, for example, in the Labour Party manifesto. Many of those transformations are actually possible within the European Union. Mm. But people are so fearful about the future that they just cling to the European Union as if it provides some kind of uh, I don't know, last ditch guarantee of the remnants of the welfare state rather than what it is, which is it locks in um, a single market and, and pr- primarily the freedom of, of capital to move across mm. borders, goods and services. Um, well, we're reaching the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you very much for coming on, Lee. It's been a, a great discussion. Uh, I would just like to ask you one final question. Is there any... Is there any positive that you can see about the current situation? Is, is there anything positive you can see in the current mess that we're in? It's quite hard. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a bit of a gloomy personality at times. And maybe I've, I've, I've come across as very negative. I mean, I guess what I would say is that it's always better that we have a clearer understanding of where we are politically. You know, a clear understanding of of where we lie, what the key relationships in society are, where power lies, all the rest of it. It's very important as 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 political activists or just as ordinary citizens to really understand what's going on. And I think the last three and a half years have been very clarifying um, because they have exposed the majority of our uh, political class as being fairly hostile to the majority of the population um, and as having a very different set of identities and interests and ideologies uh, and not being committed to principles of democracy at all. Um, now, that, I think, may come as uh, may have come as a shock to quite a lot of people. It, I'm yeah. sort of semi-shocked in a way. I mean, I'm, the depth of it, the depth of their depravity has really uh, taken me aback. And I think another thing that has shocked a lot of people is the ineptitude of the British political class, particularly the Conservative Party, you know, which is the traditional party of the state and order and, you know, historically has been the one that's always been able to adapt to these kind of shocks in order to maintain uh, the interests of property and big business and so on. Mm. Um, But you've seen this very bizarre kind of break from big business and the realignment of big business behind the Labour Party. Especially in the last few weeks, you know, big banks and the Financial Times and so on going saying, well, maybe Corbyn government's better than No Deal. Uh, and of course, Boris Johnson saying F business at one point in time. Mm. Um, so uh, I think people can now look at Parliament and the political establishment and all the arrangements of the British state with no illusions. Mm. Um 
the Liberal Democrats are you know, the, the most misnamed party in the history of the United Kingdom. They're neither liberal nor democratic. We can see that now. The Labour Party does not really represent the labourers anymore. Uh, and the Conservative Party is not trying to conserve things. It's trying to radically reframe um, our relationship with the rest of the world and our indeed our internal politics. So in the sense that things have become clearer, even though things are topsy-turvy, I think it's been useful. Um, and uh, I think also it's been clarifying because in the end, what this question boils down to is a question of, of democracy. If the referendum result is not honoured and upheld, if it is overturned before it is implemented, then a principle will have been established in British politics where, whereby the political elite does not feel bound by any instruction it, re it receives from the electorate. If it doesn't mm -hmm. like that instruction, it can, it can through either uh, sabotage or incompetence or whatever, create a situation where it becomes impossible to implement those instructions um, and then go back and force the electorate to change his mind. Mm. And that will be an enormous blow to the idea of British democracy and it will have a lasting negative impact um, on on this country going forwards. Uh, and at least I think the last few years have separated out those who respect democracy and therefore respect the principle of popular sovereignty and ultimately respect the electorate and think that citizens in this country have an equal right, regardless of their level of education or income, to participate as equals in the governance of our collective society. And on the other hand, the people that don't believe that and uh, know who your friends and enemies are is always useful in political life. Mm. Well, uh, I think if we are able to take that. Then I, I think that uh, certainly is a positive. Thank you for uh, being on the podcast. Uh, Lee, you can follow Lee on Twitter at Dr. Lee Jones. And I would encourage you to uh, visit the full Brexit website. I think it's a very interesting and uh, engaging website, whether you uh, uh, wanted to leave the European or wanted to remain. It's a very interesting website. So thank you for listening to the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Debated Podcast. Uh, follow us on Instagram at Debated Podcast. Subscribe to us on YouTube, iTunes uh, and Spotify. And I hope you'll tune in for the next episode.